0: Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show of a very special guest from Canada. His name is Matthew Arad. His last name is spelled E-H-R-E-T. And he operates a very interesting website. I highly recommend people check it out. It's CanadianPatriot.org. So it's CanadianPatriot, all one word, .org. And he's published a number of books. Uh, He has a three-volume series, Clash of the Two Americas, volume one, two, and three. One is the Unfinished Symphony. Two is open versus closed. Systems Collide, the third is The Birth of a Eurasian, Manifest Destiny. And then he has also another series of books, The, the Untold History of Canada. And some of the titles are The British Roots of the Deep State Exposed, A New Trans-Pacific Alliance May Now Take Shape, Also Caught Between Two Worlds, How an Empire Perverted Canada's Destiny, and then The Green New Deal versus The New Silk Road, Deep State Drives for Depopulation, As the World Grasps for a Real Future. Those are just some of the titles. So it has a handle on a lot of geopolitics and very important things have happened in the last week uh, around the world. But really what caught my eye was an article that was on his site. Uh, the title of that article was Pierre Teilhard de Chardin's Transhumanism and the Cult of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And I thought it was really interesting because I know people have talked about De Chardin in the past, but I was I uh, invited him on to talk about that. But there's a lot of other things to talk about, so I'm delighted that he agreed to the interview. So Matthew, Eric, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, William, thank you for having me on. I appreciate that very, very generous uh, introduction. And uh, yeah, there's a lot to talk about. But if you, you want to start with Tal there we can do we can. that. Or if you want to start with something else, we can do that too.
0: I mean, you've covered so many different things. I think you have. A, you're trying to look at your country in the context of this kind of new geopolitical landscape how did you get kind of get involved in writing about these topics and uh can you just kind of go through your background for people maybe have not have heard your name i actually got your name from a, a listener of my show he said you should have this guy on so that's oh. why i reached out to you but uh, for well, people who may uh, not know your background can you talk about it?
1: yeah sure um yeah i mean I, I i started the canadian patriot review as a as a web magazine back in 2012 in the summer just because there was a void, a vacuum, and I found that everybody who was talking about Canada, as far as analyzing the the economic system or the geopolitical situation, were sort of treating it as 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 though it existed <laughs> as a nation state, a, fin- a finalized, you know, uh, crystallized finished product, as a nation state in a vacuum, with without much appreciation for the historical dynamics shaping the, the present conditions, or the global chemistry internationally, in which Canada is, plays a certain role, but what is that role? Um, and so, originally, I had been involved with a, a Canadian history project with a few uh, like-minded people, and that went on for a few years, trying to piece together, we're like, well, what is this thing called the Privy Council, you know, why why are we a monarchy? After all of these years, and all of the American nations, all the way down to the tip of South America. Everybody chose over the years to become a republic, but Canada alone remained a monarchy. So what is, what is that? What does that mean as far as the actual levers of power? Um, What role have we played geopolitically on behalf of a British empire, which, you know, yeah, there's the funny hats, the red suits and all these, these things were, were sort of shown in Michael Caine movies. But if you look at really what the British empire was, it was understood as, as a globally extended aspiring world government. You know, there was only two forms of, of organizing your society in the 18th century, 19th century. And either you were going to have an empire with a hereditary elite governing the ship estate, you know, with everybody else as, as feudal serfs, obe- you know, maybe they would have a commons, a, a house of commons, or the commoners, <laughs> that's, that's where the name comes from, house of commons. Uh, but really, it would be the lords and the uh, the upper aristocrats who would be who would be making the real decision, and and the fount of all honors. You know, you'd have this crown institution, this this alpha family, the the prima inter pares, the first among equals, that would always be maintained to to sustain a continuity of of systems over generations. They they really need that, despite the fact that you have a lot of mediocre minds occupying that position, <laughs> not very alpha like people. When you look at you know King Charles, um despite that they need the bloodline idea they needed that's the whole way that this this type of peculiar government has has been arranged for centuries so Canada has always been a very valuable as we discovered uh, chess piece within a broader great game usually and I, and I go through this in the untold history of Canada book series um, unfortunately there there, there are. There, there are fewer things to be proud of as Canadians. There are things to be proud of. I don't want to say it's all crap. It's not all illusion, but there's, um, there's a lot more reason um, to see us as a nation that has been kept as a sort of synthetic appendage of the empire, running assassinations of people like Lincoln or JFK, whose deaths you can't understand if you don't look at the um, British Canadian operations, including Confederacy operations, where John Wilkes Booth, for example, had spent five weeks up in the primary confederate headquarters or intelligence headquarters in North America, which was Montreal, uh, receiving his instructions and his pay to carry out uh, the hit job. Same thing for JFK. And, you know, the, the idea of Canada has been generally kept as a wedge at different times to, to prevent an, uh, a U.S.-Russian um, system of cooperation, which at various points nearly came very close to setting the stage for an entire new system of cooperation around the world, especially in the wake of Lincoln's uh, victory over the Confederacy. It happened again um, in the, the 20th century a couple of times, actually. So Canada's generally been a, a, a tool used to destabilize the good. And there have been good people who have fought and used political power at different times to bring about an emancipation and uplifting of the quality of life of people. But they've been largely either written out of history or obscured or slandered to the point that most Canadians don't even know the names of those people who they should really love and cherish. While those people who they they tend to think of as their founding fathers, the 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 new godheads and celebrity heroes of our history, like our, our leading founding father, uh, Johnny McDonald, I discovered, you know, this guy is a, uh, uh, you know, he, he, was, he was one of the worst forms of racist imperialists who was slavishly saying that, you know, Canada would, a British or I was born, a British or I would die, and he worked to keep Canada at a, at a pr- particularly impor- important moment locked within the, the British system in, in, 18, in the 1860s. And, and he's a person who called for an Aryan Canada, you know, like he wanted to have an Aryan race in policy in in our constitution so it's like these are the people we're told are our heroes um or we should respect no so anyway that that's sort of where the canadian patriot came out of i was a political activist at the time working with lyndon larouche um in uh, they had a small branch office in canada so uh that was sort of where i cut my teeth doing some political organizing trying to get a better handle on how do you set up conferences for diplomats or for the embassy staff in ottawa um, so that was a good, a good bit of schooling for me and like real life schooling, yeah.
0: Right. So then, so what is, so you say that some of these heroes and kid that are considered heroes in Canada shouldn't be, who are the people who should be considered heroes?
1: Well, we got people like, um, this is actually how I started, um, my my Canadian history project originally um, was looking at well how did those leaps of progress happen? Did the oligarchy because we've always lived under one form of oligarchy or another? There's never been like a, a perfectly liberated humanity that didn't have an oligarchy. Now Canada iron law
0: of oligarchy, yeah.
1: It's an iron. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so did they just did the oligarchs just give us? Um, improvements in, in quality of life, it, you know, did, did our technological and scientific pro- progress, these moments of real bursts of quality of life and powers of productivity, did, did that just occur because imperialists w- got bored and wanted to give us these good, you know, these things, these big mega infrastructure projects, which we have quite a bit in British Columbia, Alberta, Quebec, Ontario, you know, there's, there's quite a bit that's been done. It wasn't done in the past 50 years. It was done way before that, before I was born. But I wanted to know, like, well, how did this happen? There must have been some fight because oligarchs never give these things to their slaves. They want to keep their slaves in squalor, as we see with the whole great reset ideology today. You know, the idea is create scarcity, get people to be as dumb as possible and adapt to um, scarcity, right? Um, so that's where I started looking at a lot of first-hand documentation and, and looking at the policies and who, and the players at the times of the 1950s sixties around people like CD Howe, who was known as our minister of everything of the liberal party of, um, originally William Lyon, Mackenzie King, and then, um, Yves Saint Laurent and he, I mean, Canada being brought into the, you know, the modern age by, uh, by becoming the world's first country to have air hypersonic jets. That was under his, his policy, uh, Canada becoming the, the world's second nation to have civilian nuclear energy. That was under C.D. Howe, the biggest, uh, some of the biggest water projects also under his, his lead. And then there are the people like um, like W.A.C. Bennett. The, the, for 20 years, he was the premier of uh, British Columbia from 1952 to 1972. And he's somebody who, again, you can't understand even Quebec. Like, how did Quebec become an, a hydroelectric engineering hub of the world? Today, you know, like 90 plus percent of our, our energy comes from hydroelectricity in Quebec. You can't understand that, ironically, if you don't look at British Columbia and WAC Bennett, because WAC Bennett led a fight against these Malthusians and Road Scholars who had had been embedded both in Ottawa, but also within his own provincial cabinet. Wow. And he had a. Oh, a... Still, oh,
0: sorry to interrupt, but that's still yeah. a problem today uh, in yeah. Canada, too, right? Yeah.
1: Well, well, Christia Freeland, right? I mean, uh, the Road Scholar problem is, has always been a bane of our existence. And uh, W. A. C. Bennett did battle with these these creatures. He fought to nationalize, uh, you know, uh, power uh, power corporation of of British Columbia, which was refusing to allow for the development of new hydroelectric dams or anything, and was keeping the prices, the rates of energy, extraordinarily high, so that your average people couldn't, your average citizen couldn't access affordable energy, and you couldn't develop a, a real nation building strategy with that those those artificially high. Um, rate hikes or uh, rates of energy. So he he nationalized it and he forced this new instrument to become a tool for progress and built some of the biggest dams in the North, the Peace River dams, the Columbia River Treaty dams on the BC side. He led with the help of John F. Kennedy um, when he was getting a lot of resistance in Ottawa. Uh, JFK directly stepped in and said, no, I'm, I'm giving my full support to uh, to Bennett. And he was also developing rail. So the idea of connecting rail from British Columbia up into Alaska, which is still to this very day not done, he was he moved it quite far ahead and it was sabotaged when he was ousted. And the green, uh, Depo- you know, the, the Malthusian ideologues came into play really in the 1970s when he was gone. And all of those things never happened again. And I said Quebec, you can't understand Quebec if you don't understand BC. Well, that's because when uh, there was an effort by Jean Lesage and leading figures of the Union Nationale Government of Quebec... To create a hydroelectric program, uh, they were they were getting sabotaged by Ottawa again. Ottawa was fully under the control of these these depopulation freaks, and so the only way they got the revenue, the money, which was not being granted by the the federal government, and they didn't have the means at the time to do to to fund it themselves in Quebec. Wac Bennett met with Jean Lesage in 1963 or 64, and provided him a hundred million dollar loan, and it was that loan that drove the development of all of the big hydroelectric dams around the james bay uh upper uh, quebec everything was all a bc loan ironically so that's part of you know when you look so do at Do
0: you sh- think that sorry to interrupt but do you yeah. think that that's because bc was kind of so far away from the capital and there had autonomy and could implement these things without a lot of oversight from uh, from ottawa would you agree with that
1: well, Canada is a very peculiar constitutional system, and originally it was set up—the British North America Act—to keep um, to keep the nation divided among it, amongst the parts, so that you couldn't have a very strong nation. And that was designed by the architects of the Constitution so that every every province would have a lot of authority over how to develop their own natural resources, their, uh, medicare, uh medical health systems, their transportation systems. So it, there's a lot of sovereignty to every province in Canada. Now, again, like I said, it was originally done. There's, I think it's section 92 of the constitution. I could be wrong. Um, or I, I shouldn't call it the constitution. Cause it's not, a, it's not a constitution, <laughs> whatever that thing is. But, um, like I said, it was originally done with a bad intention. It, and and Canada never even had the right to have free trade amongst the provinces right it so divide to conquer keep the nation weak by having the parts have more power and not have uh, any auton- any real sovereignty as an, as a federal government now the banking system i'm I'm saying this in a circuitous way to set the tone but I, I'm going to answer your question because you're partially right but but I think that there's something missing the banking system was always kept from the very from the 19th century highly centralized and we've always had too big to fail. There was only five or six major Canadian banks ever. And then you had smaller credit unions and credit un- unions were very important uh, in Quebec, especially in BC uh, to get around the big five, too big to fails. But they, they always had a revol- revolving door with Ottawa and the, the different, you know, pretty councillors installed into positions of authority. Bennett, um, Bennett was able to use this to his advantage, so he was you know ultimately ottawa couldn't say if the if the bc government was able to or any province was able to demonstrate that they could afford to carry out a development strategy that uh was maybe grandiose but it was not approved by ottawa it didn't matter ottawa could not stop it and uh that helped uh but but at the same time and you know the the distance from ottawa geographically helped but then again alberta also had a lot of distance but and they also had a social credit government around the same, for that same period that, that Bennett and BC was social credit. So was Alberta. And this is not Chinese social credit, right? This is a very different idea um, of using the credit of the government to fund the social needs of society. It's a very different concept. And, um, and unfortunately, be, Alberta didn't have a quality of, of leadership that could really use it to, to, to nation build in a dramatic of a fashion as, as Bennett did. Because Bennett was just, he had a much gr- bit better grasp of physical economic processes. And he also had an ambition to create a Bank of BC that would be controlled by the, the BC government. That would be the first time that that had ever been done to get around the Bank of Canada, which had always been run by Rhodes Scholars. Um, or it was at that time under James Coyne. Um, so that unfortunately did get sabotaged. But he, he just had a good sense of like how do you properly manage a, a real functioning economy without just becoming a resource extractor. And that's always been sort of the Canadian model by the British empires. Keep Canada a a hewer of wood and drawer of water. You know, we have a lot of resources, so we don't need industry. We don't need factories. We just have to cut down our trees, sell, you know, furs. We have oil, coal. We don't have to develop, like, the means that transform these raw materials into something useful. That would be for the mother country. They have... (laughs) Yeah.
0: That was the whole idea. Send everything back to England.
1: And that's always been the Alberta trap. So Alberta never fully got rid of or they never escaped that trap of saying, you know, being told you can make a lot more money just not having industries just stick with resource extraction. And to this very day, that's why if the oil markets go haywire, Alberta's economy goes to crap. And they don't have any, they don't have a full spectrum economy to back them up. If if one thing goes down, you don't want to have every all your eggs in that basket. BC didn't have that problem, but at the same time, BC today is is a far it's a far cry from any of the of, of what what I'm talking about. It it fell far, you know. Now it's a liberal uh, freak show, uh, pretty much. They don't really have policy of any, of any grand sort. It's beautiful.
0: BC is beautiful. It's totally changed. I think half of half of Vancouver's from China right now, isn't the Chinese diaspora there? And it's just totally, completely different, probably under than it was under Bennett.
1: Oh, it's, it's super different. And, and the, I mean, the, there's an interesting configuration in, in, uh, in Ch- the, the Chinese diaspora in Vancouver is different from the San Francisco Chinese diasporans in, in some interesting ways. And number one is that as a British, British Canada, it's, it's again, a part of a, you always have to think of Canada as part of a British, uh, Commonwealth, right? it was it, the, the, the worst, and I'm not saying all Chinese in, in Canada are like this, but some of the worst triads, the worst deep state operatives of China at different times, you know, there's been a lot of crackdowns and mass arrests by the Chinese government starting in the, in the late eighties and 89 against these different deep state officials. That, that was around the, the period that uh, George Soros was banned from China. You know um, it's because Ch- Soros was bankrolling with the CIA, a massive like Maidan color revolution type of operation to bring in their own Chinese Gorbachev Chinese Yeltsin character named Zhao Jiang. and when that failed all of these CIA operatives and Zhao Jiang was the head of the Chinese Communist Party in 89 uh he ran a think tank with George Soros they actually co-ran a think tank you know just to give a wow. sense of how much influence Soros had over China back then and uh he was thrown into house arrest where he rotted and died 15 years later but all of his his key allies who were working with Soros they all had to escape arrest. Some of them did go to jail, but the other ones made it through Operation Yellowbird via Hong Kong with the help of the of MI6 and the triads into uh, Vancouver. And so they were. That's where we were. They were given sanctuary to run, um, you know, an, an operation, an international operation um, over the past thirty years. And there's been other infusions of um, Soros affiliates. Uh, from China, who came into Canada, and the, again in the late '90s when Hong Kong went back to, to China, and a lot of the the criminal elements were like, Shoot, you know, what's going to happen now that that Beijing is going to start having influence over Hong Kong again? Are we going to go to jail? So they uh, they bought their their villas and manors in in British Columbia and Toronto. That's why you have a lot of triad problems here too. Whereas in in, in San Francisco, you don't have. It's a very different configuration. They tend to be more pro mainland they're not as uh yeah it's a, it's a different psychological psycho spiritual character of the chinese people
0: well they've been the the ones in san francisco have been the three four generations deep you know they're much more
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh tailored to the american sensibilities yeah i would say
1: yeah they, a lot of them were still they came in from the chinese i mean the chinese built the rail systems in in canada and BC, uh, and big time us rail systems so yeah i mean a lot of these people go back to the 19th century
0: and that is kind of an interesting thing. You talk about the rail system in B.C. You're kind of an advocate of a rail system that goes through Alaska and and kind of links the world, right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? I
1: yeah, really sure. Um, well, like I mentioned, that, that was what WAC Bennett was moving towards with his B.C. to Alaska rail uh, rail program. They had conferences back in the day called the alberta Yukon bc um, conferences. They, w- they would happen every year. And, you know, governor, um, forgetting the name now of my, my Alaska governors of the day, but they were really good. And uh, they all had this great vision of, of really modernizing, industrializing the Arctic. And that was going to be also part of the Diefenbaker strategy, too, was the, uh, the northern vision to have like science cities powered by nuclear energy um, all across the Arctic from Frobisher Bay, today's Nunavut, all the way up to uh, the Yukon and into northern BC. And so then it was very much on top of that. And uh, like I said, the rail that line today just ends at Deese Lake, which is very much north in BC. But there's still a thousand kilometers of nothing. His idea that was, and they call it the rail to nowhere. <laughs> they were trying to oh, sell okay. it for like a buck because uh, nobody wanted it. And they don't realize, like people make fun of Bennett to this day, and they call it Bennett's folly. Um, because... They
0: called Alaska Seward's folly too. If you're exactly,
1: wondering. that's the irony, right? So And they don't realize that Seward had a broad, grand design. It wasn't just $7 million to buy this giant. I mean, that was a great buy from the Russians. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, but, and it was all secret diplomacy, right? Like, even, even the British didn't even know it was happening until the last second. And there was a race, right? It was sold in um, the, 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 the sale was finalized with Ambassador Edward de Stokel, who was the, the Russian ambassador to the U.S., in, uh, I think it's May 1867. And that's, keep in mind, just about a month before, uh, or two months before, the British North America Act is is signed into law in in, uh, in London, uh, establishing Canada as a British confederacy. So I, c- I consider Canada in many ways the, the British confederacy operation against the US that worked because the Southern one failed, the Northern one functioned. And uh, Seward, was always working and negotiating with Cassius Clay, the U.S. ambassador to Russia, um, some of the best Russians at the time who really loved Lincoln, they, and, and they were all around Tsar Alexander II. They were the ones who tipped the balance in favor of the U.S. cause, or the, the Union in, uh, in the Civil War, because what happened in 1863, when everything was looking really bad for Lincoln, um, Russian ships, battleships, aro- arrived at the coasts of New York and California, and they stayed there for a year and they had direct, as as Alexander II even relayed in an interview with Charles Wharton Barker, a banker later on, he made a point that this was understood as a message to the British and French empires that if they were to openly enter into the war as they had planned to on the, on the side of the, the Confederacy, that would be a war with Russia. And so that's what kept them from openly getting in there. They were, of course, helping. The British were helping. You know, they were making battleships like the SS uh, Alabama for the, the Confederacy. A cause and they were providing money and intelligence, kind of like the U.S. had done with Syria, the Syrian rebels. Um, but they didn't get in openly, even though, and they had 10,000 troops stationed in Canada, ready to go. Um, so that the, the Russians really, really played a big role there. And Russia was studying the American system of Lincoln. You know, so you had pe- whole networks of Russian statesmen and economists studying how how did Lincoln use the protective tariff system, use constitutional banking through the greenbacks. Um, how did, how did the American system function in such a very special way that allowed for the building of the transcontinental railway, which was begun also in 1863 in the height of the civil war? You're like, you know, people are like, well, was Lincoln stupid? Didn't he have other priorities that were more important? It's like, no, he, he understood that you'd have to create a new type of, uh, spirit with a very positive idea of manifest destiny, um, versus the crappy imperial idea of manifest destiny that was big in the South. Uh, to, to animate the best parts of the, the, the spirit of the people coming out of the Civil War and opening up the West was a big big part of that. The, and so the Russian side, they were, were looking seriously at um, building the, the Trans-Siberian Railway, which only got its, its start officially in 1890, but they were setting the groundwork since the 1860s. And so the, the sale of Alaska at that moment, as I, again, I go through this in the Untold History of Canada book series in, in thorough detail, That was very much tied to the idea of extending Lincoln's uh, Transcontinental Railway, which it was finished in 1869, the first one. There was planned for about four more. Um, And and that was supposed to extend up north through British Columbia, where there was a massive, I mean, it was an economic disaster. You know, British Columbia, Canada back then was pretty much, I think maybe 12% of the surface area of what we know of today. You had four little colonies in like, Upper Lower Canada, you know, a little bit, a little tiny bit of Ontario, a little tiny bit of Quebec, a little bit of like two maritime provinces. And that was it. And then there was like, the, what, what was the rest of Canada? Well, 95% of the surface area was Hudson Bay Territory. It was, it was owned by the Hudson's Bay Company. Um, and that, that had been, it was called Rupert's Land, you know, and that had been the case for 200, 200 plus years. And so the Hudson's Bay Territory was highly enmeshed with the British East India Company. They, their mandate was to prevent the development of the nation. Um, and also you had a lot of Jesuits working in intelligence as well, you know, manipulating different native tribes to uh, either go to war with each other or become instruments of an imperial agenda. So there was a lot of manipulation of the natives too. It was, that was messed up. But then BC was this isolated lone British colony on the West Coast with no connection whatsoever to any other part of BC, uh, of Canada. And they were in an economic, they were they were co- it was, it was a shit situation it was really bad the the gold the gold rush bubble had had popped there was a lot of despair there's the only economic relationship that the people in BC had with anyone outside of BC was with California they had no relationship with 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 Britain they had tons of debt that they couldn't pay and so there's it, it's no wonder that there was a massive annexation movement of BC and uh, and and people like Seward who was the secretary of state of Lincoln for those who might not know um he was working very closely with leading figures within BC. Some of them operated through Masonic lodges. Cause he didn't have not at the time, I think there was less control over the, the Masonic lodges and, and some of them were used, uh, were, were operated by very good people. Um, that's, I don't see any evidence of that these days, but that that's what it was back, back in those days. And Stuart, yeah, the,
0: if you don't know, he was involved in the U S William Morgan fiasco in New York. He actually was an anti Masonic, uh, Seward. Politician, yeah, Seward. That's Seward, interesting.
1: Eh? It? That's yeah, interesting. no, and,
0: uh, yeah. So he has a very interesting tie with William Morgan, who disappeared, and it was a whole Masonic thing. So he was actually an anti Masonic politician well, before. I had read John
1: Quincy Adams' letters on Freemasonry, and yeah, the the Morgan situation, and was, yeah, I think it was like the eighteen thirty seven or something, or eighteen thirty three. That was a big a big scandal. Yeah, that, that was interesting. Now, again, at the time, like in my in my analysis, there were. There was a greater array of diverse lodges that were not under the same policy in those days. Um, that got diluted. Um, I think the Scottish Rite ended up becoming the, hege- the hegemonic dominant uh, Masonic Lodge of the United States, which to this day, I don't think there's, there's much that is not Scottish Rite. There might be some, but it's, it's, that's the big one. Right. Yeah, right. uh, so, uh, you, you know, a lot of people, they... they Anyway, let's, let's 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 bypass that for the minute because that's a whole discussion unto itself. But the the idea was to connect, yeah, the rail line up through um, up through BC, which was supposed to join the United States into Alaska, which had just been sold from the Russians to the Americans, and uh, thence into Eurasia with the Trans-Siberian policy going uh, program with a nine thousand kilometer railway extending up to. to to the Bering Strait, which was just separated by a tiny little gap of maybe 100 kilometers. And then there'd be lines going down into uh, China, into Asia, into Africa, into Europe. And so that was the idea was it was going to be a new type of global system of cooperation. And uh, the system of empire of a hereditary class that used Malthusian policies to, pop, to manage populations, keep their victims dumb um, and underpopulated, uh, that was going to be on its way out. Unfortunately, a bunch of assassinations, you know, from 1880, the death of McKinley, the death of, uh, Tsar Alexander II, second, then the third. And there's about 25 high level assassinations leading up to Archduke Ferdinand. That was like the age of the highest density of assassinations that I think exist, except for the sixties. Hmm. And, um, and then a couple of wars, <laughs> a color revolution in Russia funded by the the same Milner group of, of round and their, uh, their wall street, you know, uh, Appendages like Jacob Schiff funded the uh, the Bolshevik Revolution, you know, destabilized Russia sufficiently that 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 momentum was derailed. Forgive the pun, and a couple of wars. Trotsky
0: stayed at the shifts uh, the residence in New Get York it? before being shipped back to Russia. He was that's an asset. crazy, said, and I know yeah.
1: Woodrow Wilson even even kicked in at the time. There was some decent. Uh, law lawmakers in Canada who uh, had a big problem <laughs> with Trotsky coming through Canada on his way to Britain, and they were like, "This is shady," and they arrested him for a few weeks. And it was Woodrow Wilson who directly intervened yeah. to get him out of prison. Yep. Yeah. That's true. No, but Trotsky was key. He's a, he's one of the most, I think, underrated and important figures to understanding the mess of the 20th century and today. People over un, they underestimate the role, the nefarious role of Trotsky and what he represented. Which transmogrified, you know, I mean, you see how this thing transformed into the neoconservative agenda when Trotsky was no longer a viable tool because they always wanted Trotsky as their guy. He was the one who was like working with, you you know, he was happy to work with Japanese fascists, Nazi officials, SS, Oswald Mosley. Like he was so happy, just he wanted, he was willing to do anything. And and, and that meant just turning his whole nation into a slave colony on behalf of these, these transhumanists. And when that didn't work, you know, S- Stalin was able to, to keep hold of power. He kicked out Trotsky and Trotsky worked for like 13 years interna- outside of Russia to break Russia from the outside with, with massive fifth columns. So, I mean, the more I look into this, I mean, Stalin is, we're, we're told there's like these really hardcore myths that have been created and passed down to us that Stalin just made up the Trotsky conspiracy and all these Trotsky fifth columns that he just like made it all up. No, I, I, everything I'm looking at is is telling me that it was deep. It was, it, it infected every branch. It was the, it was the deep state of Russia and, uh, Stalin had to do battle with this insane thing. And when Trotsky didn't become, he was no longer useful in 1940. He was just eliminated. I don't even think it was Russia that killed him. I think he was like just eliminated by his handlers in the West. And, uh, they, but all of his people who, who were the key Trotskyites, Albert Volstetter, right? Um, um, James Burnham his personal secretary they became the founding fathers of neoconservatism conservative right, yeah.
0: right. who well, are still I, around like breland right breland uh, and uh, her husband or whatever not breland what's uh, this woman's name right here kagan and newland kagan yeah kagan and his wife right
1: yeah they seem to come right out of that that whole trend it's messed yeah. up yeah
0: so the past is precedent right past is yeah past comes to the to the fore and I mean, you talk about these transhumanists, you talk about these, uh, I mean, it goes back and that's kind of the article that we talked about that kind of was the intro to your work. This one right here, Pierre Teilhard de Chardon and the Cold of the Fourth. So we're in the hands of these WEF people, but their ideas go back. They go back to him and out of coming out of uh, Darwinism, evolution. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, well, that, that was a big part of the, the I mean, people treat darwinism as if it is some sort of a scientific idea and it really was never that there were there were other ideas in the 19th century around the time of darwin that were much more competent at explaining the the mechanism behind the evolution of species because you know the fossil records were becoming something explored a little bit more there was a sense that there was this you know that that the, the living systems of the past are different from today um, but when you read the writings of a lot of these other scientists, um, like, I'm, I'm, you know, you can look at Lamarck or Carl Ernst von Bayer or James Dwight Dana, the American biologist, who are all contemporaries of, of Darwin. They were all looking at the role of perfectibility, harmony, intention, design um, embedded in the fabric of the universe that would explain why, why certain species would disappear and certain species would come online, certain attributes would become expressed, and it had a lot more to do with cooperation than it did with trying to have a survival of the fittest in a world of diminishing returns. And Darwin, as he expresses himself in his autobiography, always got his core ideas from Malthus, his studies of Thomas Malthus, and he, he's explicit. I mean, I, I quote from Darwin, uh, Darwin's own hand, saying that it was only when I read Malthus's on the uh, essays on population that I finally had a, a sense of a mechanism by which to work at. And so Darwin was always handled by a guy named Thomas Huxley. That was his bulldog. Thomas Huxley was a high-level official, a misanthrope, like somebody who religiously just hated human beings. Uh, was very creative, though, and uh, and he was a Royal Society um, official. He set up an organization called the X Club. <laughs> it sounds like a, like a Marvel comic, but it's it's actually what they called it in, in the 1860s. And from there, uh, they set up their, their main propaganda Instrument to try to promote the idea of Darwin- Darwinism as the only solution. If you don't want to be a literal believer in every word of the Bible, because you were told you have, you have to be you have, you have one of the two to be. You know, pick right. pick one extreme. Either you're a Darwinist and then you're a you're a scientist. You will respect your opinion as a scientist, or you could be a creationist who believes that the world was created six thousand years ago and everything else is literal. Be one of the two, and and Huxley would set things up like he would make these. You know. Very highly publicized debates between some religious fanatic or another from the Anglican Church, which he would be able to, you know, eviscerate pretty effectively, and the media would just like, you know, relay that to the to the, the audience. And um, and the the propaganda magazine was called Nature Magazine, still to, existed as day, um, pushing bad science to this day. So the problem was the the church, Christianity was still not falling for darwinism. They you know there was still a sense that the that human life is sacred that we have a soul we're made in the image of god. Uh, these concepts were believed not just by the catholic church at the time because there were bad catholics and good catholics but it was also something that the founding fathers believed very deeply in. That's that's what gave birth to the best of the American Revolution that all human beings are endowed by the creator with inalienable rights because you know it's not like we have a hereditary elite that gives us rights. <laughs> we're all sovereigns, right? And that philosophically comes from the idea of being made in the living image of God. So that had to be crippled and undermined somehow. So they took a long-term strategy and um, the Jesuits at the time were one of the most useful instruments to embed this new ideology into the Catholic church, which, you know, in the 1890s, the Catholic church had, had banned Freemasonry. The, the Pope, I think is Leo. Leo. Um, I, I get my name, my Pope name's, wrong sometimes but <laughs> there was a leading pope who had banned uh, the Freemasons the, the, you know the, the, there was um, a major refutation of Malthusian ideology from the uh, the papal encyclicals of the 1880s and 1890s that you know it, that it, it is good to have more people that that's actually a good thing because when there's more people there's more souls and there's more problem solvers you know so it wasn't seen like human beings were useless eaters it was a it was a blessing to have people uh, because you know, again, if you give people the, ab- the ability to actualize their potential, and you don't stifle that, like an empire must do, you you—it's great that to have geniuses, right? Composers and musicians, and you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing. So the, the the church took a very strong stand on that, and so Pierre Teil de Chalde comes into play at this time because he is part of a—he's um, recruited to the Jesuits early on. He's part of a—is when he's studying in France, um. He's recruited to a grouping, a, a nest of uh, modernists, and the modernists within the Jesuit order are pushing this philosophy that the Catholic Church must stay relevant by adopting the scientific norms of the day and age that they live in. Also, artistic norms too. If you wonder why, like anybody wants to know why, a lot of the churches that were built in the nineteen after the nineteen sixties in Canada or the U.S. they're ugly. Why are they ugly? It's because there was a whole philosophy of adapting the church policy also in the arts to the norms of whatever aesthetic is dominant at that moment. Even if that, that aesthetic is sick as hell, it's just like, you have to stay relevant. Don't you? And so if, if Darwinism becomes popular, then that has to be synthesized into the, the, the Christian doctrine. That's the philosophy of the, of the modernists. So I, I don't know about some of the details of like, what made this kid so there were a lot of modernists, but he really stood out. He was really ambitious and he saw himself as a, as he describes, a Messiah figure or a Moses who is going to reform um, Christianity. That's how he saw himself early on. So, what, what gave him that fanaticism? I don't really know. But the way to do it, he, he basically, his job, his assignment in life was to infuse Darwinism into, um, into Christianity, into Catholicism specifically. His first assignment early on was to, uh, set up a hoax. I it was called the, uh, the, 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 piltdown man. So he's part of the team from that, that discovered, you know, some little fragments of bones or, or a jaw and a few teeth in a, in a, in Britain somewhere. He was like going for a walk <laughs> and he was like, Oh, a bone and some teeth. <laughs> and you know, they find this, this deposit, like this deposit of, of just bones that they piece together and, and it, it's discovered later on that they took basically, I think it was a, a dog's or a monkey's jaw and they stuck some a human cranium on it or something and then painted it. But it really was polarizing. It was electric. And uh, the propaganda machine went to full force. And, and this was sort of the, the thing that was the missing link because the big Achilles heel in Darwinism is where are the, the missing links? Like, where's the gradualism? Darwin says that all species change gradually, slowly. So we should, in the fossil records right? We should see small gradual changes, but we don't empirically. We find these, these discontinuous leaps from system to system, right? Where it's like, well, what, what happened in between? <laughs> right. And so th- this was the Piltdown man was an attempt to, to fudge the data and fill that to try to get across that. Yeah. Somewhere between Homo erectus and, and monkeys, we got this, this quasi human monkey Piltdown man. And uh, so again, that was a hoax. And even though people started discovering, I think by the early twenties, it was sc- a scandal that, that was pretty big. He didn't give up. And then he, he plays a role later on uh, when he's, he's kicked out of the, the Catholic church. They're like, no, you're, 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 you know, his writings were really heretical. Um, like really trying, he was trying to move way too fast <laughs> with what he was doing. And they kicked him out and they said, you know, uh, you're not allowed. They kicked him, They said, you can be in the church. But you're going to be in China. We're going to stick you as far as away, away from the any influence that we can imagine. We stuck. They put him in China. They said you're not allowed to teach. You can't write or publish. You could do good missionary work. You know. So he spent 20 plus years in China. Now, this guy was, according to his own diary writings and and letter writings, he despised Chinese people. He thought of them as subhuman. Untermention, he was a follower of Friedrich Nietzsche. So a Catholic priest following Friedrich Nietzsche. Right there, you got a problem. Um. He he never bothered to even once try to learn the Chinese language. He's there for twenty years. You're in a country for twenty years. You're never going to learn the Chinese language. Like are you kidding me? He didn't care. Um, he was just looking for his opportunity to get back into play, and he found that in uh, I think it was like forty three or forty four. He found himself on a, again um, uh, on a on a team. Now all of a sudden, excavating the Peking Man, and the Peking Man was like, okay, here's how it goes. The the Peltine Man was hoax too bad but now the pickin man that's the missing link now we found it and even to this very day there's there's actual scientists who still treat this as if it were a discovery despite the fact that the bones that they say they found that tell the shall play a role in popularizing disappeared after they put them on a crate onto a train the british just sent that train off to some museum they got lost along the way we we have Shaldane's Ty- description of what the bones are nobody actually has evidence of this thing ever having existed this missing link but despite that it, this one has successfully hung on and maintained itself in the mythology down to the, the present day. Now the last thing and which is where I started looking at Shaldane is I had gotten I had noted when I was reading the, the works of you or reading the transcripts of speeches of people like Yuval Harari you know the, the lead uh, misanthropic schmuck philosopher at the World Economic Forum and people like Ray Kurzweil as well, lead, lead Google engineer, another, uh, you know, transhumanist. They're all transhumanists. Elon Musk, transhumanist. Mark Zuckerberg, they're all transhumanists. So I'm like, okay, they seem to be talking, especially uh, uh, Kurzweil, uh, Kurzweil around, about this idea of a singularity. And they all seem to be using this very Darwinian language, but it's not a randomness. Because in Darwin's, in the, at least the, the version of Darwin that's popularized to the masses, the plebes, it's premised around the idea of a random function that there's just like random mutations happening. And every, every once in a while, you know, you, you roll the dice, you get like a, a million, you know, sixes in a row and you get a bigger claw. Now the version of Darwinism that is actually passed down amongst the elites is not random. They have an idea of eugenics that, and, and eugenics is sort of the, the, the applied application of the Darwinian theory to human systems. Which is just Malthusianism, really, <laughs> with a bit more of a scientific veneer around, you know, weeding out the unfit in a in a in in a push to create a new race that would be the most fit. Now the thing is, who's going to be the natural selectors? It's not God, so who are going to be the who are going to be the people deciding who is fit and who is unfit? Who's going to be euthanized and who's not? Who's going to be genetically modified to be better? Who will de- determine what those characteristics are? Right, and then you get this arrogant, you know. Uh, elitism that you can't get around. So these guys, like Zurawal, they're all talking about this teleological moment in the future, pulling us towards this moment, the singularity, at which point they're saying, you know, like, as technology, that, in their view, as technology increases and human freedom decreases in relative similar proportionality, that singularity is going to be a threshold moment that you can forecast, at which point, technology, they say, Will become thinking, feeling machines, right? It's a it's a cult of artificial intelligence. At which point, we will either go extinct become because that new computing uh, AI will replace us, you know, very very uh, Terminator two, um, or we merge with that machine, that machinery, using CRISPR or test tube babies, or you know, integrating machinery and computing chips into our brains, whatever. Um, so there's this whole like nasty theology. It's a satanic theology around it. And where does Teil de Chalde come in? Um, so this idea of the singularity, this, this new age, pulling us into the future, comes from, <laughs> at its heart, chalde So chalde was the first to put forth the idea of transhumanism in his correspondences with Sir Julian Huxley in the early 50s. They met a few times. Uh, chalde played a role in some of the founding institutions around unesco after the war um but they were real kindred spirits and and again julian is the grandson of thomas huxley darwin's bulldog right the handler of darwin um, all this had a different role to play julian was a little bit more assigned to the scientific warfare domain all this people say oh he was like a great prophet warning us of of the dangers of uh totalitarianism no, no, he's a predictive programmer and a eugenicist as well. Uh Aldous. His job was he had bad eyesight, he couldn't be a scientist, his assignment was cultural warfare, and that was his job. And popularizing things like LSD, doors of perception, you know, his 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 prized soma. Um so they, they all sort of like worked synergistically together. And so Tael de Sheldon, he um he created and, and sort of systematized the idea of a new pseudo-scientific religion for the elite, and that was transhumanism. And, um, and he calls, again, for the uh, integration of Marxist-Leninism, which is really a form of Trotskyism, actually, is what he's pushing for, into uh, the Catholic Church, which, which gave birth to a, a process that became known as liberation theology. Um, a lot, of the, a lot of the figures were good people who got pulled into it in the 1970s, but really it was used uh, as part of a geopolitical tool. And a lot of these priests, these Jesuit priests were like fighting with AK-47s, with, you know, Sandinistas and other, other you know, Latin American rebels and stuff, which is where there's a big Catholic population. Um, a lot of them were sabotaged as well, like, because the Jesuits, the way the Jesuits operate is it's sort of like this hierarchy, right? Um, with, a, with generals above you. And so you have sort of like this anti-Pope figure at the top of the food chain, um, kind of like, in a, again, a very Masonic type of structure, constantly um, testing the lower initiates along the way all the time. So the initiates are, are putting themselves through different forms of, of brain, self-brainwashing, um, ego stripping through the meditations of Ign- Ignatius Loyola, you know, they're, they're basically inducing themselves as Loyola says, you know, you have to bring yourself into a conviction that snow is black or no, that white is black. If you're uh, if your superior says it to be so you can't ask questions and you have to believe it. You have to like pass a lie detector test. Right. So that is a lot of self conditioning um, to 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 get to that place where you're doing that and just becoming an, an obedient tool, not asking questions. You have to let go of your sovereignty. And so for those who pass the tests and are brought into the upper level management, they find themselves, like in the case of the, the, um, the Jesuits in South America, often working with the fascist right wing governments of, let's say, Pinochet or these other groups put in power by Kissinger, Schultz and others, which is part of the big reform in the 1960s and, and 70s. Right. As you put in a bunch of like <laughs> Nazi collaborators advising governments, because a lot of the Nazis were brought into South America. Right. They were integrated by Alan Dulles into the CIA, into into MI6, like Bandera. That's what's behind the problem of, of Ukraine today. It's that there's been a careful cultivation of Nazis over many, many generations. And uh, they I did this- Klaus
0: Barbie, Klaus Barbie was like a high-ranking member of- Ecuador one of the smaller countries in South Africa. Exactly.
1: America, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and their because Bobby was not, not alone. And, and so you find that a lot of the higher order Jesuits are also working with the, the Nazi right-wing fascist governments supported by the CIA and, um, using their lower useful idiot liberation theologians who are like fighting with the rebels. Cause they got a heart, you know, they see the injustice and they're like, well, we got to do something. We can't just pray. We should like fight to, to, stop the 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 tyrannical dictatorship you know and and if that means picking up a rifle we do that now at the same time they were they were often just used and thrown away like toilet paper and sabotage so it's this whole thing it's it's nasty um but that's what pope francis so also pope francis i think is is i mean i was gonna say closet transhumanist but i think he's out of the closet at this point you know like he's integrated the, the catholic church into the world economic forum on so many levels with the rothschilds on the Council for inclusive capitalism and all this other crap. So
0: I heard he had an Operation Condor connection.
1: He did. I gotta look more into that. I, I know Michelle yeah. Chusidowski, who runs Global Research, did a really good article on that that I have to study. But yeah, he was working with some hardcore, nefarious right wing governments and CIA operatives in the seventies and killed a lot of priests and uh, and innocent people. He he made a name for himself.
0: Yeah, yeah, there's all kinds of secret wars going on. They used to mm-hmm. take uh you know, uh, leftists and fly them out over the ocean and just chuck them out the uh, chuck them out of the plane. It's terrible. Phew. Disappeared them. Yeah. yeah, bad stuff. Yeah, crazy. So, yeah. but you see that this kind of history, uh, intellectual history, goes back through Chardon. So what you're seeing played out today, Harari, who's a monster, um, and these other characters has its has its ideological heritage goes through Chardon, right?
1: Yeah, but, yeah. And some more it than others. Oh,
0: they kind of they kind of just relifted his concepts and re rebranded them or renamed them. Right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, I don't know how original of a thinker he is. He was definitely enthusiastic. That that's for sure. Um, but you know, like he was tightly in bed. there's some some of these grand strategists are very useful. Like Yuval Harari describes in one of his speeches that I've listened to way too many of these speeches by, by Harari. They're, they're so disgusting. Uh, it's like watching a train wreck there. You just like, can't help it. <laughs> um, he describes how H.G. Wells was his earliest inspiration to become a philosopher. And he was mm-hmm. reading H.G. Wells' outlines of history. Whoa. And Wells is, again, one of these high-level... I would put him on par with Child, with or even a little bit higher as far as an intellectual grand strategist. Uh, maybe Bertrand Russell, I would say. he's Bertrand Russell and H.G. Wells are probably of the highest order grand strategists of the 20th century, at least uh, both being Fabian society operatives and, and high level. And, I mean, you, again, of, of, of right? well, yeah. I mean, H T Wells was a student of Thomas Huxley direct directly. Um, he was a direct student and he was a, a devout eugenicist. Again, you know, like these people all believed in a creation of a, they, they, the name transhumanism didn't enter the, the lexicon yet, but that's really what it was. That's what eugenicists are. That's what Nazis were. It's, you know, you believe in the untervention, the under the underhumans that have to be exterminated um, of all races and creeds. You know, it's it's they're not really peculiar, specific against like black people or Jews specifically. It's really just <laughs> there's a whole category of humans that have to be eliminated and weeded out. And then the uh, <laughs> Hitler, the 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 headed, brown eyed Hitler with the Jewish grandma <laughs> <laughs> would talk about the great, you know, Aryan race of blue eyed, blonde, you know uber-mention um, over, over, over humans, better than humans, uh, who would be the breed for tomorrow that we'd have to like... And people like, you know, this is so embedded with the entire, you know, genetic therapy revolution of the 1970s that really took took hold with um, the sequencing of the human genome and people like Epstein even, you know, even Epstein was a big backer financially of a lot of this, this crap. And he had a whole weird ranch and... Somewhere in Mexico, I think, or maybe it's no, in New Mexico. Yeah. New Mexico, that's it. Yeah. Where he's like trying to like breed a new race yeah, of humans, yeah. with, like female sex slaves, uh, to plant his seed, who he's like dubbed himself to be like the best of the best. So, of course, he's got to like spread his seed. It's weird. Like, it, it really is religious.
0: It's very strange. And you know, he you had a lot of friends in this kind of modern uh, eugenicist movement, like a lot of people paying, a lot of people who are around kind of influencing other people. I think it's interesting. Harari too. You have to put him in that same line, doesn't he? He's a full-on evolutionary biologist, right? I mean, doesn't he time the beginning of man coming out of, you know, whatever? I, what what's his what's the book? The title of his book that we're
1: oh you know, yeah like, Homo BC, we
0: Homo whatever. Like yeah, I forgot what it
1: was. <laughs> I think he's
0: one of those. He's one of yeah. He's one of those Darwinist types. I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's um. He's, he's, it's, it's interesting to hear him speak, uh, because like he describes, he just puts it into such clear words, this idea, you know, he's like, there was, there's the the big bang. I remember him saying like the big bang happened 13.7 billion years ago. And he goes through one of these stupid, you know, like simplified all science history in like, you know, 10 minutes. And he's like, and everything has been random without any cause. The universe doesn't care about any of us. And it's all just been randomness until now. And it's like he's trying to give a sermon to a bunch of at a, at a pulpit to a bunch of technocratic, you know, anti-humanists. And he's like, but now <laughs> we've finally achieved intelligent design for the first time in, in all of existence, except the intelligent designers are not God. It's going to be the CEOs at Google here at Davos. And uh, they are. we are the intelligent designers who will then be able to Control and upload our souls. Th- the cloud won't be heaven. It will be a cloud that we upload our uh, our digitized identities into our brains into or something. Because they want to cheat death, and I think ultimately a lot of these guys, Ray Kurzweil, is is like fixated. He's written books about his fear of death and how much he wants to bring his dad back to life because he's got an un- un- unresolved stuff with his pop, you know. Um, that's like psychologically a big thing in his head that shapes is again, Ray Kurzweil, right? Like leads engineer at Google. Uh, Harari is, I, you know, he's a pathetic character who's, who's been really, he's probably been abused a lot. He's afraid of death. He wants to upload his, his soul into the cloud and maybe have it installed by USB into some like, you know, cyborg in the future or something. I don't know. But, um, yeah, they're really not able to deal with the reality of, of the death of our, our bodies. Because if you were actually looking at good religion, Christianity, uh, any, any, any healthy approach to like a religious identity puts first and foremost the fact that we're going to die and our soul is immortal and our soul is made by God. And you have to live according to that fact, you know? And, and when you do, you can really become a wise person on a much, much faster pace Than if you had, if you lack that and you're floating from moment to moment, you know, try to find some sensual gratification to give you a little bit of sense of meaning or or cover up the lack of meaning in your life, which, you know, all of these blue bloods, they just, they're useless eaters, right? Like they're, they're born. They're
0: the the useless eaters, right? right?
1: They have no skills. They have no trade. They're, they're useless. They're just feeding like, like the royal family, right? Like they're, they're getting millions of dollars every year from taxpayers across the commonwealth. To do nothing—that's their job—is to do nothing. Though they do things, but their job is to do nothing and <laughs> just live in castles. Okay. Like that boredom has to be filled by something, and, and unfortunately, they—they they find a lot of very, they got like a, a hypertrophied, hypertrophied logical side, you know, which which can really take over and crush any any human sentiments in time, and they pass it on to their kids. You know, it's it's really sad.
0: It is sad. I mean, and that's really, I mean, they say the New World Order is the old world or old world order. It's like the same old people who want to make these changes are these old heraldric, heraldry families from all over the globe, really, not just the royal family. Yeah, so, yeah,
1: nothing new under the sun. Yeah,
0: yeah, so. yeah. They're the ones who were trying to make this change. WEF. I think they, they, their attempt at propaganda was uh, re- reversed and sent back against them. I think the people realize that WEF is just. Uh, social poison. So I think, I think they kind of they didn't really uh, do a good job of getting their ideas across to the general population. Maybe they did to the elites or the pop, you know, the people, the politicians. But I think <sighs> the regular citizen is just like this is a horror show.
1: Yeah, I think there's generally I think they push people to the the max at this point. Like there's a certain, I mean, the population allowed we did allow ourselves to become overly corrupted. I, I th- that is a, pr- it's not just the, it's all the elites faults. You know, it's not, it's too easy to say that, you know, the, the fate as, uh, was it? Uh, Cassius said in uh, Julius Caesar, the fate dear Brutus is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. Um, the masses allow themselves to be poisoned. And there are certain cultural norms that have really, uh, it, it's rotten. And so people have to, I mean I, I think the last couple of years has been a big learning curve for a ton of people who have become much better, much wiser people in the course of having to let go of a lot of the <laughs> the sacred cow illusions that they had been holding on to for a long time um and and making some discoveries fast but uh no they they can't sell this stuff to the population you know they have to they have to wrap it i mean that's why yuval Harari says like the only solution for the useless eater the useless class is drugs and video games because they know they can't intellectually get people to in a popular, you know, mo- create a popular movement around depopulating ourselves, or like owning nothing and being happy. They can't do that. So the best that they can come up with is well, just try to pump them with as ma- as many drugs and video games and and meta, you know, immersion distractions,
0: yeah. bread and yeah. circuses. The modern twenty first century bread and circuses.
1: Exactly. Maybe they want being euthanized. <laughs> you know, if if I we mean, do that, man. maybe. But they're 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 out of ideas.
0: Matt, can I, uh, we're at about 60 minutes. Do you have time for a few questions?
1: Yeah, absolutely, sure.
0: Hill Doggy is asking, can you ask uh, Matt about his time with the LaRouche organization?
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, that was, that was a really uh, positive overall, I mean, overall experience. I was involved with them as a volunteer full-time for, um, almost full-time, uh, between 2006 and 2017. And yeah. Um, I had, I had sort of been going through a bit of turmoil after, you know, I had I'd, I'd made a lot of my my um, discoveries about 9-11, international bankers, all this stuff, uh, in around 2003. And I went, you know, it was a, a, like all, for all of us, it's, you know, it's traumatic to discover that you've been living in a, a, a cave and all of the the... the, the popular beliefs of everybody around you that you've been living by and the traditions are all just shadows on a cave wall cast to make you stupid and bring you into a slaughterhouse like that's painful so i didn't let that go and it really bothered me and i was writing a lot but i didn't have solutions so at a certain point i uh i just said you know i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna shut up you know i'm i'm, I'm either making an, a, a pest of myself only talking about conspiracy theories all the time and when i do a good job if i am effective it's uh the the consequence is depressing people (laughs) um or they think i'm nuts so i'm like neither one is that useful so i'm just gonna you know integrate back as best i can into the shadowlands and just try to like float and see what happens but i was like in my the back of my mind i I had made a commitment if i do ever come across viable solutions at any time i will fight for that and I, i it took me a long time to uh come to those until i was on a smoke break uh after work one day and uh or no on a work break and there was a political table and it was a a small outfit from the LaRouche organization in Canada and they had maybe eight or nine people in in Canada I didn't even know about that I I thought I thought I was pretty smart and I didn't even know who this LaRouche guy was and uh, they had signage you know like stop depopulation um a, a bunch of things that captured my attention I started a conversation it was a literature table and I I took some of the literature and I I you know I was impressed by the idea that there is a fight and an organized. I mean, this this movement around Larouche was dead now. He died in two thousand and nineteen at the age of ninety six. But he had spent fifty years setting up an international array of organizations in Europe and in the Philippines and South America, and um, it had a there was a policy orientation that I could get my mind around. I could see it working. That's where the idea of the Bering Strait as a very important. Um, game-changing policy for the past hundreds of years came into my, my perception. I didn't know about that. I didn't care about rail development until I started really thinking about it from that standpoint. And so, yeah, I, I, I volunteered. And um, like I said, it was a Canadian branch. And like I alluded to at the very beginning of this, this chat, um, LaRouche spent a lot of time hammering at the British Empire as a still-existing thing, which at first I thought was crazy until I started looking at, well, what's, what killed JFK? What took over the U.S.? Uh, the US economy, the US, you know, government, especially since the 60s. Um, And I started realizing it's actually British, it's British intelligence, it's city of London, it's not American. Um, The American nation and the American people didn't even benefit for the past 50 years of globalization, right? Everything is weaker. So if it was the US empire, as I had been led to believe, why did the US empire destroy itself and its own people? So I was like, okay, makes sense. (laughs) It's a foreign entity. And then the problem, like I said, we're in Canada, and I'm like, well, Canada's British. So how does that impact my world? And and none, none, nobody did really did that work. So there was a big blank spot, and I'm trying to like talk to Canadians, doing my political organizing, and trying to convince them to impeach Dick Cheney or impeach Barack Obama from Canada. And there's a bit of a disconnect, you know, because I could prove that it needs to happen, but you know, when I'm talking to somebody from like Quebec or Toronto to, yeah, your job as a as a citizen of Canada is to impeach the US president. Like that doesn't, you're not going to have a connection, you know, you'll lose people. So, um, that's where that, that Canadian history project got started with a few people who shared my frustration and we decided to do, start doing some work and, and the discoveries were amazing. Um, and we couldn't get them published anywhere. And, uh, that's where I had to, I was like, well, if I can't get them published anywhere, let's start our own journal. And we did that. And, and that's been something I, I let it die for a little bit when I, I, I parted ways with the LaRouche organization, um, in 2017 personality differences with some, some, uh, people still have no problems with the organization's policies at all. I'll defend that. Um, but I, and I, I let the Canadian Patriot sort of die for a couple of years, but then one day I went back to, after Trump had gotten elected, I, um, I went back to the dashboard of the website just for shits and giggles, just to see like, you know, how's, how's the traffic, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to do anything. I hadn't put, put a new post up and I found that there was, I was getting like a thousand hits a day. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's, there's a hunger. So I decided to revive that and, and incorporate that into my, my political writings and, and what have you. So. Nice. That, and that's- you've done
0: a lot of these like kind of books with other authors. So it's you and some names I'm not familiar with, but you're working with other people to kind of. Blow the dust off certain.
1: Oh, yeah, I couldn't do this by myself. This was, uh, this, was, this was a team effort. And the first book, The Untold History of Canada, uh, I did the forward, but the, the content on that's the one with Benjamin Franklin in Canada. Because Ben Franklin was up here in Canada for, uh, for several weeks trying to organize to get Quebec to be the 14th colony to, to go to the, the, the Continental Congress and sign the Declaration of Independence. And uh, there, there was a lot of sabotage. But that book was written by Pierre Baudry, who's who's an incredible researcher, a former uh, professor at the Université de Montréal. He joined the LaRouche organization in the 70s. Um, but he did some amazing work that got me... M- my engine really revved and... Um, yeah, my, my my current trilogy uh, that you see up there, I, uh, The Clash of the Two Americas, I've co-written with my wife, uh, Cynthia, uh, Cynthia Chung. She's also a wonderful writer, and she's going to be putting out her own first book in the next two weeks or so okay, on uh, another angle to how the U.S. intelligence was purged by the British.
0: Interesting. What's the? Do you have a title for it? Or are you able to? It's going to be. Uh,
1: I don't want to bastardize it, but I think it's. Uh, why the black sun never set on the British Empire, and it's going to have a picture of the black sun of the occults, the the sun and rod, sun and rod. Yeah, exactly. And it's going to go a lot into Operation Gladio. She she really unpacks and takes a lot of time getting at the Operation Gladio. Gladio from the incorporation of Japanese fascists, Nazis, Italian fascists into U.S. And MI6 intelligence agencies, it's gonna be scary. Good scary. Interesting.
0: Interesting. I'd like to I'd like to interview her about that. Um and somebody asked, Yodi Bear asks as populism rises in Canada. Do you think Poyev or Bernier could change the direction of Canada if voted in as PM?
1: Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, um, I was very impressed by the the mass organization like the mass organizing that uh, i saw with my own eyes on the ground in ottawa and and all across canada around the uh, the february truckers convoy that was very very well done um that couldn't have happened from the the political class i mean bernier and poilievre are at the very at the worst they or at the best i should say at the best I believe that they are um, disturbers of the transhumanist agenda. I don't think that these types of personalities would go along with the transhumanist program. Um, I do think that they would be more inclined to be influenced by their the masses, the, the, those who elected them. Um, I've got major problems with both of them on in terms of how they are both economically incompetent and ultimately both believe that faced with a a systemic economic breakdown as we are currently living in right now, both of them believe that it's the job of the government to do absolutely nothing because they both believe in what's called creative destruction. In my mind, that is criminally incompetent if you believe in in such an absurd idea as creative destruction. And I actually spoke to Bernier a couple of months back at a town hall event in in Montreal, and I asked him this question. People could see it up on my website and his response was just the, that you know the, the collapse has to happen the best we can do is try to love our our neighbors and our, our family and 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 hope for the best and and i believe that coming out of the collapse will will have like a new system of gold backed currencies with bitcoin and it's like you're not thinking like it was the most idiotic lobotomized mystical answer that's useless in a time of crisis so i'm very unhappy with both of their hyper-Austrian school to the extreme ideology, which ignores all precedents, both in Canada, US, and beyond, on how to actually carry out a political-economic fight with an oligarchy, we can do it. There are instruments that are available to us to carry out that fight, and defend people, and build an economy. We can do all of those things, but they don't know how to do that. So that's where, for me, I, I, I always have that criticism, and if they can change, great. <laughs> gotcha.
0: And is there anything you'd like to add, Matt, before we wrap this up? i got to run out. Uh, Your website, again, is CanadianPatriot.org, right? So people can buy your books there, right?
1: Yeah, they can buy the books there for sure. Uh, Easy to find, CanadianPatriot.org. There's also RisingTideFoundation.net, which uh, my wife is the president of. It's a nonprofit, more educational-oriented, also based in Canada. Um, So that's RisingTideFoundation.net. The last thing I would say is if people want to – Uh, Get my Substack. Every day I put out a a video or an article on Substack. That's matthewerrick.substack.com. Now, the last, last thing is if you don't have money, I understand the economy's kicked a lot of people's asses. Not a big deal. Send me an email and I'll send you some free PDFs of the books at uh, CanadianPatriot1776 at tutanota.com. T-U-T-A-N-O-T-A dot com. And I'll, I'll shoot you the PDFs.
0: Awesome. And I will put those links in the show notes. So, it's your website is again CanadianPatriot.org, then the Rising Tide Foundation, which is all one word, risingtidefoundation.net. And then I'll also include your email. But fascinating talk. Thanks for so much for sharing all that knowledge. Really interesting. And uh, I really appreciate
1: it. Hey, me too. It was, it was a lot of fun. And uh, anytime you'd like to do it again or talk to my my wife about her new book, then uh, I'll hook it up.
0: I'll shoot you an email. Thanks so much, right. man. I appreciate Take care. it. Take care. Bye. Stay there, stay there.